Even though I'm vested in white for the Feast of Corpus Christi, ordinary time began a couple weeks ago. What color do we associate with ordinary time? Okay, good, very good. Um, why is green associated with ordinary time? Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> I think it has something to do with the Irish, but I'm, I'm not sure. Here's what I do know, though. Ordinary, ordinary time, it sounds like every day, usual, routine, doesn't it? Ordinary time is contrasted with higher times, like the higher times of Advent and Christmas. The ancients understood there's another type of time beyond sequential time, A followed by B followed by C. The higher times create a closeness with the event. For example, Christmas of 2021 is closer to the nativity of Jesus than is the first Thanksgiving of 1621. Something similar happens with space or places. For example, if you walk the streets of Assisi, there is a presence, a noticeable presence there of the holy man, St. Francis. Certainly it's the case in the Holy Land where God became a human being and walked and talked and bled. Even though our part of the world doesn't give much credence to higher times and places, we glimpse the truth of this on our birthday or at our old family home or with the piece of clothing mom used to wear while she was still alive. There's a closeness with the event or time or person from long ago. Ordinary time became the description of secular time. The word secular comes from the word seculum, which means age or century. So ordinary is the time of this age. Ordinary secular time is contrasted with God's time, the eternal. Now, it came to be used as a way to contrast vocations. Those who live in secular time attend to the things of this world, raising a family, providing for them, earning money and such things. Those who live closer to the eternal are cloistered off from this world, like monks and nuns, and attend more directly to eternal things. As Jesus said, those who obtain the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for example. Now, this resulted in that caricature that some of you old-timers might remember and relish. Remember how that saying goes? The priests pray and the lay. Oh, sure, you know green, but you don't know that. <laughs> this explains something. The priests pray and the lay pay, right? Of course you do. Now, this caricature is rooted in the complementarity of vocations. The clergy prays for the lady and provides a reminder of the eternal, like a beacon in the night. Don't forget about that. And the laity, well, at least in the old world, they provided for the clergy, for their defense and the defense of the nation. Now, this distinction of old is still evident in the different types of priests. On the one hand, we have what are called regular priests, also known as religious priests, who are cloistered off often into a monastery. 
And then on the other hand, we have parish priests like me who are also called secular priests. They live in the world. We live in the world, have to deal with the things of this world. With the push for reform in the 11th century when we tried to whip all of you heathen lay people into shape by forcing you every year to go at least once to communion and confession, with the push for the reform in the 11th century, but especially in the 16th century Protestant Reformation, which rejected the idea of higher vocations like monks and simply declared them invalid, with the push for reform, everything was effectively condensed into secular time, the time of this age. Now, this severely affected the sense of the sacred, the sense of feast days, just how many feast days or holy days of obligation do Protestants have? It affected our understanding of the sacraments. No, that bread, that, that host that you're holding up, no, that's just a symbol. It's just a bit of bread. It began to seem like the Christian life could consist only in a certain manner of living in this world. Rulers in the old world were all too happy with this focus, finding more laborers and more dynamism for their economies because there were fewer monks and nuns out of the workforce and fewer days off work for holy days. And thus they had more money for their armies. From this stage, it wasn't a huge step to that world of the eternal has no bearing on this world, which was the belief of many of the founders of the U.S. They were deists. They believed that there is a God. He created everything, but he has nothing more to do with the world. Like a watchmaker creates a watch, winds it up, and lets it go, and there is no intervention. So they had to end up saying that the miracles of Jesus didn't happen. And then eventually, the last step. This world is it. There's nothing else. And so we find ourselves living in a secular society, a society taken up with the things only of this age, a society that finds the sacraments, the supernatural, and God incomprehensible, not because secular science has disproved them. The supernatural is by definition outside the scope of the natural sciences, they're incomprehensible because our worldview has shifted without our knowing it. The presumption we've inherited is that the things of this age are it, and science is the best lens through which to see things. That works when you're exploring Jupiter, but it doesn't work so well when you're exploring yourself, which is why we remain a mystery to ourselves and look for ways, money, success, gender ideologies, violence, to get beyond the artificial confines erected around the human spirit by the secular age. This world is it, and your spirit is saying, no, it's not. For the ancients, the world, including the self, was porous. They saw the self, the soul, kind of like a sponge. It could be penetrated and influenced by either dark or light forces from the other world. The Corpus Christi processions of old were in part an example of this, during which the mysterious presence of Jesus Christ marked off the boundaries beyond which the faithful believed evil spirits could not pass. And if such an evil spirit passed beyond the boundary of the soul, the powerful name of Jesus was uttered, 
and an exorcism could be performed. But now what do we do? We just say, I'm not going to let that bother me. How effective is that, do you find? That our ordinary time is poor, it's an open to God's time, is evident in the Jewish worldview. In the collection of Jewish law called the Mishnah, Rabbi Gamaliel from the first century is quoted as saying that when Passover is celebrated, remember Passover is the deliverance of the Jews from Pharaoh and Egypt. When Passover is celebrated, he said, in every generation a man must so regard himself as if he came forth himself out of Egypt, for it is written, and you shall tell your son that on that day, saying, it is because of that which the Lord did for me when I came forth out of Egypt. Those who remember and celebrate Passover somehow participate in the higher time of God when he intervened in Egypt and led his people out of slavery. It's little wonder then that in about the year 100, when some of the earliest followers of Jesus gathered to remember and celebrate what he commanded them to do, do this in remembrance of me, it's little wonder that just before the distribution of the bread and the wine that had been penetrated by Jesus' powerful words and made holy, the people cried out, Hosanna! As the disciples did as Jesus entered the holy city of Jerusalem to die and rise again. You are a city set on a hill, Jesus said. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The early Christians cried out as Jesus was entering their hearts and drawing them into his death and resurrection and into the heavenly city, Jerusalem. Hosanna! We too cry out in thanksgiving for Jesus, for his mysterious coming and the holy gifts, and for the way in which what we do in here combats the reductive, ordinary worldview out there.